This is The Guardian. Today, in a society where couple goals is not just a hashtag, but a very real economic and social pressure, why are an increasing number of people single? Where you stand. Valentine's Day can be a good excuse to show someone you fancy them or just an exercise in rampant consumerism. Either way, it's billed as a day to celebrate love and romance with that someone special. When I was a child, I used to love Valentine's Day because I saw it as kind of like, you know, romance Christmas. And then when I became an adult, I realized there was an expectation of what it should feel like and what it actually feels like, regardless of whether I'm single or in a relationship. Fewer people are marrying now, and the Office for National Statistics reports that the number of people living alone in the UK is rising far faster than family households. It's clear that this is part of a long-term trend. But for many women, being alone still carries a heavy social stigma, and marriage is still seen as the be-all and end-all. You've got to say it's because it's the traditional path to motherhood and it was traditionally where economic security came from. So therefore, there's always been a lot more riding on being in a partnership for women. But the culture is shifting. A whole raft of female authors are rewriting what it means to be single and why the stereotypes of old just won't stick. From The Guardian, I'm Noshi Iqbal. Today in Focus, the rise of the single positivity movement. Emma John, you've written a book about your experiences of being single. As a child, how did you imagine your life would be? Did you see yourself getting married? Oh, I 100% assumed I would be married. My parents were married for decades, never split up. So I, I had a very good view of marriage. Um, and I'm sure that I'm not the only person who even had the age at which I would get married in my head. I mean, I was sure it would be 26. I just assumed that, you know, this was was going to be part of my life because it's inevitable, essentially. And so I think... When 26 came and went and I wasn't married, it didn't really concern me because I wasn't yet 30. And probably when I was 30, it didn't really concern me because I wasn't yet 35. And it was really only coming up to 40 when I, for the first time, thought, I wonder if I have to confront the possibility that I might be single all my life. You know, just judging by Instagram alone, you could be forgiven for thinking that today Everyone is in coupled up bliss, but the data tells us a very different story, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, definitely. The proportion of women who are single has actually been on the increase since 2002. That is the first year that the Office for National Statistics has data for. 
Since 2002, the proportion of women who are single has gone up in every age range up to 70. The big proportional increase for single women who've never married goes between 25 and 55, which is basically when you would expect women to be settling down, essentially, as we like to term it. I mean, there is a comparable increase for men too, but that we see skewing slightly older. It's in the 55 to 59 age range that you see the proportions of men who have never never married and are staying single, doubling. So half the adult population isn't in a legally recognised couple and the proportion of men who have never married or been in a civil partnership is slightly higher. But we know that being single is much more stigmatised for a woman. Why is that? So one of the interesting things about the word spinster, which, by the way, went out of official usage in 2005 when we got the Civil Partnership Act, women who are unmarried are no longer officially called spinsters. But the tropes that have grown around that word and the stigma that's become attached to it really don't kind of emerge until the 1700s, 1800s, because it means etymologically, somebody who spins for a living, somebody who spins wool, spins fabric for a living. And the reason why it became associated with single women is because that was a job that unmarried women who were still living in the family home could do. So therefore, a great proportion of um, spinsters were unmarried women. And it ended up being what they wrote down on their marriage certificate in the marriage record when they went to get married and you put down your first name and your occupation. <laughs> and over time, the, the two became so merged that it became the official term. But something really changed. And there were genuinely, there was a huge, really nasty nasty trolling of um, old maids, as they became called, that uh, was written about in all sorts of literature. And that's where these tropes come from. People would genuinely suggest that there should be taxes on single women because they were using up too much resource. And I know lots of women who have internalised all those outside pressures to feel that if you haven't found a partner, then have you really reached adulthood? And that pressure has persisted. We're all sold this traditional model of living. You know, girl meets boy, fairy tale wedding, 2.4 children, the whole sort of suburban shebang, which sort of feels like an unrealistic reflection of where we really are. Take LGBT communities, for example. I mean, historically, that hasn't always been their experience. And there are now so many different examples of people rejecting that nuclear model. Definitely. And queer culture pioneered different forms of living from Victorian era to the present. In America, there were these things called Boston marriages, where two women lived together and gave each other the kind of support that they would have received in a marriage, both socially, but also economically. And then there are feminist communes that came about in the 60s and 70s. There, there were more prevalent communal ways of living. Even with those different relationship structures, this notion of the couple is still something a lot of people really aspire to, including people in same-sex relationships. So there's a really interesting piece of research that was done by a UCL professor called Sasha Rosneal and her colleagues called The Tenacity of the Couple Norm, and it was published recently. And they looked at case studies in several different countries, Norway, Portugal, Bulgaria and the UK. So places that have really different political and social histories. And they met with many different people in many different situations, gay and straight, divorced and never married, people in polyamorous situations and 
they, no matter who they talk to, they discovered that this couple norm is so ingrained that everything we do, whether we're inside it or outside it, is in relation to it. There's this great quote that says, the feeling that coupledom is the ideal state of being is often experienced as fundamental to being human. And I am not somebody who is here to say that we shouldn't live like that. I think coupledom's wonderful. It's just fascinating that we haven't ever really looked at it critically and explored it. Emma, you've been single for some time now. And I bet that when you go to parties or whatever, people ask you about it. And if you can just indulge me, how do those conversations tend to go? It's funny you ask that because um, that's how I decided to open my book. With um, I sort of um, set it at this christening. Those would be the times when not only were you around your friends, but you were around your friends' friends who didn't really know anything about you. And, and so they would reach for the most basic level of small talk that everybody does and say, oh, so, um, so are you here with anybody? Are you married? Uh, do you have kids? All these things that we talk about them as small talk because they feel so universal. It's just an unfortunate irony that that for the people for whom that isn't the case, they are probably the most painful, awkward topics you can bring up. <laughs> um, and so I got very good at trying to like come up with intonations in my voice that said, hey, let's move on to talking about something else. You know, I would say, no, I'm not married, not yet. And then quickly try and move the conversation on. But yes, it's always an awkward one. It is always the moment when you feel, you know, as if you've left a bad smell in the toilet and left the toilet door open, I think. And I mean, I'm sure, as you said, some of it often comes from a place of friendliness. And if people are happily coupled up, they probably think they want to see you happy as well. But when you ask those questions to a stranger, and often, I guess, strangers do ask you, and you don't know what's going on in their life, you're really asking them to divulge something that's very, very personal and basically, I guess, none of their business. How does it make you feel? It makes me feel that um, I have to have boundaries. <laughs> that's what it makes me feel, you know. And actually, quite a few of my single female friends say the same thing. You come up with stock phrases that you can use in those situations because otherwise you do end up, as a single person, um, suddenly trying to, like, tell your story and justify your entire existence to somebody you don't know. <laughs> um, so that that's where the stock phrase comes in useful. Uh, I have a friend who, if she ever got asked do you have another half? She would say, no, I'm a whole person, thanks. <laughs> because it just annoyed her so much. I guess, like, because I'm 26, I feel like that pressure will come in, like, a couple of years. That's because it's still seen as kind of socially acceptable in your 20s to be single, whereas I feel like as you get a bit older, it's not. Annie Lord, you're the dating columnist for British Vogue. So I'm betting people ask you a lot of questions about your relationship status. My mum is getting increasingly bad for her. <laughs> it's funny that she was like, oh, Annie, you know, you know, Dev Patel, he's, he's only 29 or something. And I was like, Dev Patel's age is not why I'm not getting with Dev Patel. And I'm like, I would love to go out with him, but <laughs> there's a few more obstacles in the path. So I remember what a huge deal it was when Tinder launched. And I wrote at the time this piece about all the dating cliches that people fell into so quickly, you know, posing with tigers, posing against cars, or in these mega filtered selfies, just holding massive glasses of wine. I imagine, Annie, that for most of your dating life, dating apps have actually been the norm. 
What do you see as their pros and cons? I think a good thing is it can really help you get out of your sort of circle of who you'd always end up getting with. Like, you know, you sometimes go on dates with people and you're just like, I would never, ever meet you in or come across you in my bubble, which is nice because, like, I don't really want to go out with another journalist or writer. <laughs> We're all so self-obsessed, so that's really nice. I think a massive con is that there's so much choice that you can really, rather than going on a date, getting on well with someone and then thinking, cool, let's see this blossom and let's get more to know each other and then as I do they'll become more and more attractive and we'll get more and more into each other I feel like it's just everyone's so disposable to you so you just like talk a bit and you'll just f- invent a reason to not find them attractive I've had situations where honestly I've been ended up talking for like three months and just never met up oh my god as if you needed a new pen pal Annie when you do make it onto an actual real life date how do you approach it what's your strategy where would you go yeah, probably a weekday drink somewhere at a nice-ish pub. Not a Spoons, but maybe like one slightly above that. But it's weird though, because I sometimes talk to other female friends and I've been shocked about their version of dating, which seems to be like going for a proper sit-down meal and the guy pays and things like that. Because I've just never, not even like from my own morals at all, I love it if they paid, but like just from like um, the it's not, not really been a suggestion, but I, I feel like it's weird, isn't it? Because maybe that's just the type of guy that I find attractive, like looks wise. Do you know, like I fancy quite like scruffy, like fleece wearing, hoop earring men. And, <laughs> and like, they're not offering to buy you I dinner. Just, maybe that they don't like paying for things. Or like my flatmate, he was talking about um, going on a date with a girl and he was like, oh, I wasn't that into him. But then we're talking about their date and he took her for a really nice meal where he spent like a hundred pounds and then made her a full English the next morning. And I was like, I would think you were in love with me if you did that. Wow. I think most people would have thought that was a successful date. Annie, the last couple of years have been especially testing if you're trying to date and pretty fraught, to be fair. Did you manage to meet up with any people? The best date I went on was like me and this guy. It was actually in the bit of lockdown where you could go to bars, but I feel like I was a bit nerved by the prospect. I think I'd like acclimatised drinking outside. So we were like sat on a bench in... um, it's really sad, tiny bit of grass. And oh my God, so embarrassed. Like, if I didn't fancy him, I wouldn't have been embarrassed to go wee in a bush. But because I fancied him so much, I was like holding the wee in for the whole day. We drank <laughs> so much. And then on the way home, I had to like, I get two buses home. And like in the gap between the change of the bus, there to go have a wee in an alleyway. It was really, <laughs> really stressful experience. <laughs> That's how much I liked him. I think when I was in my 20s, it was this entire push towards finding the one, you know, with a capital T and capital O. Poor Annabelle is in her 40s now. She's an author, a journalist and a champion powerlifter. She's also single and dates regularly. She knows exactly what she wants now, but she says she didn't always have that self-confidence. I felt as if I needed to mold and shape myself into the most attractive version of myself as possible. Because if the other person saw anything less than that, you know, they wouldn't love me, they wouldn't like me, they'd reject me. So I don't think I was really myself when I was dating. And I think also, I didn't really consider whether that person was going to be a good partner in the long term. I think I just wanted them to be interested in me and to fancy me. And I don't think I thought about it more deeply than that. 
But you did later in your 20s find the man who you described as your soulmate, which was Rob. You had six years together and then he took his own life. Corona, you've written about how devastating that was and the process of grief. But as your vision for your life together was suddenly changed, I wonder how you began to reimagine your future. I think for me, it was a very black and white understanding that I had to figure out a way through it. Because if I cloistered myself away, then I wouldn't really be living the life that I wanted to be. And I definitely don't think Rob would have wanted that for me either. And I think the understanding is once you have been loved in that way, in a very, very fundamental way, and to use that word soulmate, where it it does feel very fundamentally different to other relationships and other connections, it's about abundance. And it's about showing you that if you are capable of feeling like that, then why wouldn't you be capable of feeling like that again, or in different ways and different forms? And that's the path that I ended up going down and I think that that's the path I subconsciously chose for myself. It's the understanding that the more love that you put out there, the more open you can be about things, obviously looking after yourself within that, but the more you can do that, the more love you kind of receive in return. And that has absolutely been true in the six and a half years since he passed away. You were in your mid-30s at the point when you lost Rob. You were grieving a partner at a point where a lot of your peers, I'm guessing, were maybe starting families. What was that like for you? Those first few years were incredibly difficult in terms of navigating and figuring that out. And I wasn't resentful of my friends. Of course, I was happy for their you know, achievements and the life milestones that they had reached. It's just that I just felt like I didn't fit into any of that. And that felt very disconcerting. Also, especially as you're approaching your late 30s, and society has this entire machinery that is designed to make you feel as if time is running out. And I think definitely in the last two years, that has just coalesced into, well, according to who and who sets the milestones. And if that person is me, then why does it matter that I'm not keeping up with everyone else or that, you know, my life doesn't look like everyone else when I had something happen that completely decimated everything that I thought I knew and that I believed in. And so that actually led to a more truthful way of thinking about things, I think. Paula, there are a lot of assumptions also made about what it means to be Asian and dating and what expectations parents or culture may or may not have on you. Do you think your being a British Indian woman had any tangible impact, do you think, on your dating life and subsequently on being a single woman? My parents are fairly liberal. So that whole thing of you have to marry someone from the same background, the same caste as you, religion, all of that stuff. I didn't have that. And I know how claustrophobic that can be from having gone to university that had a lot of South Asians in it. The type of person I think I was looking for, I actually thought it would be someone South Asian and it ended up being someone who was white and from New Zealand. But I think the most important thing was does this person appreciate and want to learn about my culture? And that was the thing that was most important for my family. So when I met him, I didn't really think about it from the intersectionality point of view of being South Asian. But if you're talking about, you know, the pressures around in particular marriage and having kids, which is, I I feel so much more intense coming from a South Asian background. I know that my mum really wants me or wanted me to become 
a mother, I'm sure that she really wants me to get, you know, remarried because in her mind, those would be the things that mean that, you know, my life is happy and fulfilled or whatever. But fundamentally, I'm the one that has to live with my choices. And if those choices are never going to be enough, then I have to live a life that's more truthful to what what makes me happy and what fulfills me rather than living a life according to the obligations of what someone else thinks I should be doing with it. Emma, you're in your early 40s now. And when you look back over the past decade or so, that's a time when typically lots of people get settled into long-term relationships. How did you see things shift among your friends? I think as a single person, you do go through repeated heartbreak, actually, with your friends. You go through this process of repeated abandonment. It's a pattern that you find yourself really used to. I sort of found a way to surf different friendships, I think, surf different friendship groups. I quite actively seek out community, neighbours. You know, I I have got to know all the people who live in the flats around me. And I think, yeah, I have kind of surfed those waves. And what's lovely about that is that if you can do that, you know, not burn bridges with the friends who have moved on in other ways, you know, not feel bitter, not feel envious, just accept that this is a stage of life and and that they're not going to be around for you so much right now. Then you get to pick up those friendships later. You know, they're always there. My, My university friends who were just, you know, the loves of my life, I'll be honest, most of them have gone off and got married and had kids and it's just about now that you know I'm seeing them much more because their kids are now of an age where they don't need constant supervision and that's the wonderful thing because those friends haven't you know the reasons I loved them haven't gone anywhere and I get to be close with them at, at a new different stage of both of our lives. Annie, you had a long-term boyfriend who you met at university. The two of you split up in 2019 and the following year you became a dating columnist for Vogue. How much has your job and the problems that are shared with you changed in any way your perspective on being single? It's made me realise how hard it is in terms of dating. I think there's so much about being single that isn't to do with dating that's like completely joyous. I think if you're someone that's confident really likes themselves has everything going for them because it'll just be impossible to like have good sex with people or meet people that you get on with like so rare that I meet anyone I fancy you've written an essay in this new book which is called unattached in which you talk about strengthening your relationship with yourself how do you feel about being single I think mainly just having so much time to invest in friends like I feel really loved at the moment and I think it's just helping me to think about in terms of when you're single, you're not losing out on anything. In this essay, you write so wonderfully and honestly about heartbreak in a way I think a lot of us can relate to. How did you work your way out of it? I mean, at first I'd completely lost interest in food and, you know, because all that anxiety, it makes it really hard to eat anything. I was eating, but I was just eating in a really functional way, like sort of standing at the fridge and picking out some like bits of, pasta from the other night or then like wandering off and then wandering back and then having a bit of hummus and bread and then I just like snacking all day and then when I did eat food it would be something really depressing like a bowl of cereal yeah and then as um time went on and I guess I sort of started to piece bits of myself together again and moved to a new house it didn't remind me of him and made more friends and got really into my work 
even doing little things like going for a nice walk on my own on Sunday, getting a coffee or going charity shop shopping and things like that. I just sort of found myself more again. And I turned a bit of a corner once where I was walking around and I was a little bit hungover and I saw this market stall and there were these peaches and they just looked so like juicy and they were really brightly colored and um googled a sort of recipe to make something with them and then made this peach pie spent ages making it just for myself and then went home and sat in bed and ate it and it just felt like I'd finally found a reason to cook for myself and indulge myself in that way whereas before it would always he would always be the excuse to do that I've definitely gotten a lot better at taking the time out to make things I want to eat Coming up, why being single doesn't mean being lonely. Does anything scare you or worry you about being single as you get older? I used to have a sort of existential fear of it, and really the fear is of being lonely. I'm sure that is it. it. It was for me. Then you look at your life and you say, well, have I been lonely to date? I've done 20 years of being single. I really, really haven't experienced much loneliness at all. And I'm very lucky that I have a wonderful friend now who is in her mid-80s. She lives in North Carolina. She's somebody I met when I was actually working on my second book, which was about becoming a bluegrass fiddler in in the Appalachians. And I'd gone over there, solo travel, on a bit of a quest. And my friend Jenny, she's never married. She lives alone. And she is one of the most curious, active, social, fun women that I know. During the pandemic, I phone her on Skype every day and we would play a few hands of cards because that was something we could easily do over the computer while having a video chat. And just having her as a friend is a huge benefit to me in that I think, well, if I grow up to be Jenny, then uh, life is not too bad at all. But on a day like today, which is so focused on romantic love, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that we'll experience so many different kinds of valuable relationships in our lives. Emma, what has being single taught you about love? This is something I've learned about myself really recently, partly because of lockdown, partly because in 2019, my mum was diagnosed with leukaemia and uh, told she, she might not have long to live. So even before the lockdown, I had gone home to my parents' house so that I could be there because she was going to be spending long spells in hospital. And I wanted to be with my father. I wanted him to have somebody looking after him. You know, being a single woman has been a part of me staying close to my parents because I think I have relied on them in ways that I might not have done if I'd had a partner. Uh, And this was, it was my turn to step up. And I spent two years with them, really. Um, Most of lockdown, I got to live with my mum in the last two years of her life. And when my mum died, which was last September, in the weeks afterwards, I had quite a few people saying to me, 
thing you need to know, Emma, is, you know, you have been a wonderful daughter. And it's one of those things that, you know, you sort of embarrassed to, <laughs> certainly embarrassed to say out loud um, and share because it sounds, um, it sounds like a, a boast. But hearing that, I, I had to like accept that and think, do you know what? I have, I have been a good daughter and I have been able to be a good daughter because I'm single and, and it's been a part of my identity in a way. And I've thought about that identity in a way that I might not have done if my primary identity had been as a partner or as a mother. Life is about all our connections and all our relationships and about finding meaning and joy in all of them. Emma, thank you so much for sharing that. Like a hard relay and I'm sorry for the loss of your mum. Thanks. That was Emma John. Her book, Self-Contained, Scenes from a Single Life, is out now. My thanks also to Paula Bell and to Annie Lord. You can read their work in the book, Unattached, Essays on Singlehood. That's it for today. This episode was lovingly produced by Hannah Moore, exec by Elizabeth Cassin, sound design is by Axel Cacoutier, and the executive producers are Mythley Rao and Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. <laughs>